Welcome to the Vegetable Beat. My name is Ben Phillips, and I work with Michigan State University Extension. And my name is Natalie Hoytel. I work with the University of Minnesota Extension. We've been doing this podcast over the last few years, and we're changing the format a little bit for this season. We're going to do some pre-recorded interviews. It might not be us doing them, but we'll have some other folks featured sometimes. And this is one of those episodes. Rue Ginger at the University of Wisconsin was interested in interviewing vegetable farmers who do no-till and low-till production. So this is one of those interviews, the third that Rue has sent along in this series. How are we doing this, Natalie? So this podcast is brought to you by the Great Lakes Vegetable Producers Network. It was kickstarted by the North Central Integrated Pest Management Center, and our license for transistor is held by the University of Minnesota Extension. And you can listen to this episode and all the rest at glveg.net slash listen. Take it away, Rue. Good morning, Kevin and Annalie, and thank you for joining me today. Um, So I'm really happy to have you here from Good Turn Farm to talk about um, some of the practices that you're using on your farm to reduce tillage. And I wondered if you could start off by just um, introducing yourselves and a little bit about your farm. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm Anna Lee. I'm Kevin. So Good Turn Farm uh, is a small scale organic uh, production methods, vegetable and cut flower farm in Stockholm, Wisconsin, which is uh, in the Northern area of the Driftless region. Uh, we grow using organic practices, like we said, but we dropped our certification a couple of years ago. Uh, we direct market all of our products within about 30 miles of the farm, and we do our growing on semi-permanent beds that are slightly raised. Those beds are all four by 50 feet, and we have approximately 110 of those beds out in the field in the open, and then another 30 of those underneath cover under three hoop houses and two caterpillar tunnels. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, the two of us do all the labor on the farm. And during the growing season, Annalie works off farm for the land stewardship projects for 16 hours a week. And we also have a seven-year-old daughter. So our labor is kind of limited and we usually put in probably 80 to 90 hours of work on the farm per week. Mm-hmm. Between the two of us. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And yeah. then some of the main tools that we use for our farming, the caterpillar and uh, hoop houses, of course. And then we have a 40 horsepower utility tractor, a compost spreader, which has ended up being pretty important now, mm-hmm. a six foot flail mower. And we use the paper pot transplanter system pretty extensively. And then we also have a lot of hand tools, including uh, a wheel hoe that gets used a lot. And then tarps, I think. You oh, yeah. So we use a lot of tarps on the farm now. Yeah. Uh-huh. So you've been farming since 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and I understand that <clears throat> you started trying no-till um, just maybe around three years ago. So could you talk a little bit about why you started experimenting um, with reducing tillage on your farm? Yeah, I can touch on that. So um, it's hard to pinpoint exactly how it all happened, but um, we had heard, so yeah, back in probably 2018, 2019, we 
we're hearing about small-scale no-till vegetable production from a few places, including Chris Blanchard's podcast um, and then Andrew Medford, Medford's uh, Organic No-Till Farming Revolution book was coming mm -hmm. out around that time. So those were two places where we were kind of hearing about it. Um, at that time, it kind of felt like the general narrative with vegetable farming was that it was like really hard to do vegetable farming and take good care of the soil. So it was sort of like soil health was a hot topic, but it was like the ways you get, um, you improve soil health on farms is through rota rotational grazing, um, having like no-till in conventional systems or using cover crops. Mm -hmm. And at the time it kind of felt to me, so we had been farming maybe three years at that point. And it was kind of feeling like the story was that <laughs> if you're a vegetable farmer, like good luck, you're just not, it's really hard to take care of your soil well because you're gonna be doing so much tillage um, for cultivation. Mm -hmm. And so hearing these stories about small scale, small scale no-till production was really exciting to us at that time. Um, there was also this piece around quality of life and that small-scale no-till was maybe a way to improve quality of life as a small-scale farmer because it may be a way to reduce weed pressure and therefore just the amount of labor overall that you're putting into the farm. And so that was also um, very appealing to us. We, um, so Kevin mentioned, I work for a land stewardship project. I um, am a facilitator for the farm beginnings class. And in that class, we were doing demonstrations of um, the slake test where you put a little clump of soil into water and like watch how fast it dissolves in the water. And we were doing, um, for that, I took some soil samples from our farm um, and seeing the difference between the soil in our hoop houses, which we had just sort of accidentally been doing no-till with because we couldn't get a tractor easily into the hoop houses. So comparing that soil with our field beds where we were using a rototiller very regularly, mm -hmm. um, there was a very stark difference. And so that was a really like <laughs> some serious like hard evidence that using a rototiller regularly was definitely not great for our soil. Um, and so that was also just like, um, I think pushed us into looking into it more. Um, that's, a, an amazing, um, thing I think to see that side yeah. by side comparison, um, Absolutely. and something that I, I think it's, it's so valuable to occasionally stop and, and do those tests, which, you know, the slate test is great because it's not actually all that difficult to do. No. And to have that comparison, it's it's kind of awesome that you had those hoop house areas where you know you you hadn't been tilling. Yeah. Um, and I know that sometimes people look at like a fence row as a comparison mm -hmm. as well if they don't have an untilled area otherwise. Yep. So yeah, that sounds like really um, really clear evidence that. Yeah, it was a great it was a great push to like think harder about it, um, just because it was so obvious the 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 structure of the soil was so much better in those um those no-till beds and the hoop houses and then we had also seen just some visual difference 
So at the time we were, um, we were already using landscape fabric on beds, but like burning holes into the landscape fabric and planting into the holes. Occasionally those landscape fabric sheets would get left on beds over mm -hmm. the winter and comparing, so taking the fabric off of those beds in the spring and looking at that soil compared to soil that we had tilled pr prior to the fall, um, it was just a very stark difference between mm. like just visually the quality of the soil looked a lot, a lot worse on the till fields, like a lot of um, crusting on top mm -hmm. and cracking and stuff. So, yeah. So those were the things that I think kind of got us excited about no-till and, and started us down a path of exploring how to, how to start. Uh-huh. So we're using the word tillage a lot, and I think it's really useful to, mm -hmm. to talk a little bit about what that means, because obviously there's a gradient of degrees to which we disturb the soil in agriculture. So what kinds of soil disturbance are you trying to avoid? And maybe give some examples of tools that you would consider like tillage that's more damaging and, and soil disturbance that's less damaging from other tools. Sure. Yeah, I, I really like the term no-till, but I think in the context of vegetable farming, it's a hard one to apply because so many things that we do end up being some form of tillage. Mm. It seems like, you know, even uh, I think of harvesting carrots or potatoes, which we grow, is uh, a more aggressive tillage than we do with just about any tool that, uh, that we would use in the soil. Mm. But we're trying to definitely reduce the number of times that we till and to swap out more aggressive methods with uh, methods that do less disturbance. So uh, for like preparing beds that have gotten weedy, we've moved away from using a rototiller and then have gone to something like a wheel hoe or a harrow where you're only doing a single pass through the soil and not inverting the layers. Mm -hmm. And I think that we've seen that that is um, improving the soil health quite a bit. Something I like about that way of thinking of it is that it offers a lot of different entry points for people who mm -hmm. want to reduce tillage. Um, in the, the systems that you have, have seen, I guess one thing that I, I get curious about is the some of some of the interviews I've read with people who are growing in a low-till system, it gives you the impression that the whole system has to be implemented and that there's going to be a painful transition process. Mm -hmm. um, but then once you get this whole system implemented, you can get it working. Versus this other method of, um, of just looking at different parts of your operations and saying, well, where can I, where can I reduce tillage? Mm -hmm. Do you have any yeah. thoughts about that? Like the, the whole system approach versus, you know, looking for places where you can improve a little? Yeah, we talked about that uh, a bit. I mean, we, like we said, we accidentally started doing that in hoop houses, which it seems like it's a, a very easy place to start doing no-till because it's, hard to till in there to begin with, but also because they tend to get so much more uh, attention and hours put into them. Mm -hmm. so you can manage the weeds better in there. Yep. And it's kind of a smaller contained space. 
so yeah, we had sort of accidentally started that way, but I mean, then in the field, it was similar in that, like, we didn't have a farm wide plan in terms of how we were going to start implementing no-till, but just started trying, trying it out mostly through using landscape fabric or silage tarps. Mm-hmm. and covering uh, covering an area and then removing those tarps and direct seeding um, into those areas. And so that was probably the first way that we really started trying it out. Specifically, mm-hmm. um, I think carrots was one of the ways that we were really excited about because we we're having, like many people, like so, so many issues with um, seeding carrots and, and weed issues uh, out competing carrots. And yeah. so we were really excited about that and and have really adopted that method of tarping a location taking off the tarp to seed the carrots but then um, with carrots specifically we actually put the tarp back on for usually like five days or so Mm -hmm. um, to help the carrots germinate and to also kill any um, annual weeds that are popping up um, in that time so uh-huh. Nice. So at the moment, um, what percentage of your farm do you think is in some sort of a low-till system? Uh, we're probably up to like 75-ish percent at this time. Um, not So I guess in that case, we're not really counting like our root crops because like Heaven said, it's um, as we're digging up carrots and potatoes, like we're definitely inverting the soil. Yeah. Um, and... And then there are some beds that we have to make a judgment call that we need to um, either use a rototiller, which happens very rarely at this point, but still occasionally happens, or um, use some other form of um, tillage. But Mm -hmm. yeah, probably like 75-ish percent. Do you see that staying pretty stable or are you planning, do you see opportunities to reduce tillage further? I think we're going to continue to reduce tillage. The main thing that forces us to use tillage now is because our beds get kind of weedy Hmm. because we don't have that many uh, hours to put into it. And so weeds often get away from us. Yeah, that makes sense. Hmm. And certainly a a common problem. Yeah, Yeah, if we get to the point where we're able to cut back on the amount of like weeds going to seed in the field um, and really get that weed seed bed reduced over time. Uh, Yeah, I think we would continue to increase the amount of um, beds that we're doing no-till on. So Mm -hmm. moving in that direction, I think over time. Yeah. So um, when you were introducing your farm, you mentioned a number of tools you're using that, um, that, feed into a no-till system or a low-till system like tops and um, flail mower and a compost spreader. So it sounds like you have a few different types of systems you might be using. And uh, I wondered if you could walk us through um, some of the, some of the systems that you have found work best for you. Sure. Uh, One that we've grown to really like, uh, We grow a lot of baby lettuce and a lot of head lettuce. So if we're transitioning a few beds from one crop into a head lettuce or baby lettuce crop, we'll go through and harvest all the previous crop out 
and then take the flail mower, mower over the top of the, the bed surface and cut that all the way down to the ground with the flail mower. Mm -hmm. And then if there are still a lot of weeds in there, we'll go through and wheel hoe and cut the roots of the weeds under the ground, then come through with uh, the compost spreader, which has been modified to put down just a four foot wide ribbon of compost and spread that right over the top of the, the bed surface at about a half an inch thick. Mm -hmm. Then we'll cover it up with a piece of landscaping fabric. We use a 3.2 ounce woven landscaping fabric that is 15 feet wide for the most part. Mm -hmm. And we like those because it lets uh, air and water through and it seems like the soil is a little bit healthier underneath them, although they're not quite as effective at killing weeds. Yeah. And then uh, we leave that on for about two weeks. And once we take it off, we'll see if there's still some weeds in there that we need to hoe out. If there are, we hoe them and then uh, direct seed right into the compost with a jang seeder. Mm -hmm. And we may rake it beforehand to prepare the, the seed bed. And then we spread sustained compost, which is a composted turkey litter on top of the direct seeding and then kind of lightly rake that in and water it. And then um, usually that does a pretty effective job at suppressing weeds and having a good seed bed to plant into. Uh -huh. And so that so, was um, describing direct seeding, but very similar for our paper pot transplanter system. So we use paper pot. We do a lot of, uh, sell a lot of head lettuce uh, wholesale. And so we do a fair amount of that and very similar. Like we, once, once the tarp is removed and then we, if everything is looking good, then we can just plant directly into that with the paper pot transplanter. And you're finding that you have um, friable enough soil that you can go through with the paper pot transplanter and it, you know, it breaks through the soil fairly easily. If you put the compost down and tarp it and there's some moisture, rain mm -hmm. or sprinkler that goes on top of that, then yes, but that's not always mm -hmm. the case. Uh-huh. Yeah. We yeah, have... I was wondering about putting the compost down before you're putting the landscape fabric on. Do you think that that is part of getting like a good tilth in that bed? Yeah, we have a pretty good earthworm population now that mm -hmm. has built up over time. And so they kind of work that plant material and the compost down a little bit. And so that does loosen up the soil a fair amount. We did have, or we do have clay loam soil. Yes. And so it starting out, it was pretty heavy. Mm -hmm. uh, amending with compost a lot over time has helped with that. And, and, but yes, we can definitely still get beds that are just too hard to paper pot into um, immediately. Yeah. What do you do in that situation? If it's not too bad, I might work it with a wheel hoe. Mm -hmm. And then if it is too bad, I've got a tractor mounted cultivator that has uh, really wide sweeps that aren't very aggressively pitched. Mm -hmm. And so I can run that through the soil at about two inches deep pretty slowly. So it's not really moving a lot of dirt around and that yeah. loosens it up enough to work it through. But mm -hmm. in that case, you do see uh, more weed seed coming up. Yeah, of course. So you mentioned two different types of compost, the sustain, that's the turkey litter, 
uh, compost. And then um, I was wondering where you get the other compost that you're using to put down before the landscape fabric and what the feed material, the feedstock is for that compost. Yep. We buy a lot of compost in from Cosmo Compost in, uh, I think they're in Corcoran, Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. And a lot of farms in our region buy from them. They mm -hmm. are a compost producer that mixes uh, dairy cow manure with wood chip and a few other things. Yeah. And they turn it a lot. So I think it ends up being like a bacterial dominated compost, mm -hmm. but they're mm -hmm. one of the few uh, compost producers in Western Wisconsin. Uh-huh. Yeah. And definitely a product that's important to get as locally as you can when you're using a lot of it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so we get, um, I mean, do you know, have an estimate of how many yards per year we've been getting in? Probably 50 to 80 yards a year that we buy in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you said that you're using that for both um, that system that you described uh, for both direct seeded and transplants. So is that, is that the main system that you're using on your farm? Uh, for shorter season crops, yes, it is. Mm -hmm. So things like carrots, all the baby greens, all the head lettuce, Salanova lettuce is all done that way. For things that are in the ground longer, we often use landscape fabric with holes burned into it. Mm -hmm. And then for a few other crops like potatoes and garlic, we do a heavy mulch with finely chopped hay. Uh-huh. So I, um, I have done a lot of potato trials where I have used um, straw as a mulch mm -hmm. and uh, procuring the straw and chopping the straw are both um, definitely uh, big tasks. Um, I am lucky in that I can get straw at the research station that I work at, but... Um, Chopping and applying the straw is, is always, that's a big day. So yes. I'm very curious to hear um, both where you're getting your hay from and, uh, and how you're applying it. Right. That's something that we didn't talk about when we were saying what our farm situation is. But the farm that we're on now is a small area that's part of my multi-generational family farm, mm -hmm. which my father still operates as a conventional no-till uh, corn, bean, and hay rotation. And so he has a decent amount of hay ground that's part of the rotation to just maintain soil health in that yeah. system mm -hmm. that's available. And we've bought some old uh, mid-scale dairy uh, hay handling equipment. So a silage chopper and a couple chopper boxes mm -hmm. to chop the hay and to move it over here and to, to move it around. And that Stuff is fairly cheap at auction now, but saves a huge amount of time. Mm -hmm. So is that a is that a chopper that like you've got a tractor mounted and is it actually spreading it onto the field as you go down the row or are you having to manually spread it? We still, well, there's a couple different ways we do it, but we do manually spread some of it in the case where I can't get over the top of it with the spreader that we have. But if I can, we'll, it's a tractor-mounted chopper that chops into a, what we would call a chopper box, and then that can dump it out into a pile, or it can spread it into a single windrow, 
But if we dump it out into a pile, then I can load it into our manure spreader and take that over the top of a row if a crop isn't very tall. So if like the potatoes have just been planted, you can get over the top of them. Yeah. But after things have grown up a bit, then you have to bring it in there by hand with a, a pitchfork. I have spent many hours doing that in yeah. potato <laughs> trials. So I'm always looking for a more effective way to, to handle that that kind of material we've tried mm -hmm. um we've tried the landscape uh mulch spreaders in the past that have the um the fan and the big pipe uh the big sure. flexible hose to to spread it out which works okay but mm -hmm. any way you do it it's it's uh quite a bit of work yeah but, it's just yeah. a lot of material to move mm -hmm. it is yeah it is so I always like to ask people about systems that they might have tried and um, and dropped because there are so many different systems out there for um, low-till or no-till, um, and some things just don't work in some locations. So are there any things that just didn't work out for you? Um, we did start early on doing some crimping of winter rye and mm -hmm. trying that out. Uh, so we talked about our bed system, which is we have the hundred-ish beds out in the field and then under hoop houses. We're also doing, trying out some production in the field that's more of like a low intensity, like single row, like a longer row. Mm -hmm. And in the past, we've tried doing that um, with crimping winter rye, but just didn't have a dense enough stand. And so mm. the depression was just not great. So that's something that maybe we would come back to in the future, specifically for um, like winter squash was a good crop for that system. We felt if we could get a strong enough stand of winter rye. Uh, so that's something that at this time we have dropped. We've also tried doing more so like bringing in transfer mulch onto a bed and transplanting crops into that but depending on the crop like we've seen some stuff just really hate it like peppers really hated being in uh mulch i think just because it was cooler in the early mm -hmm. season um yeah so that's something that we don't do a lot of right now it's more that like um bringing the mulch in like once the plants are growing for potatoes or the garlic. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 The, um, the more cover crop based methods I think are really interesting, but it, it seems like there's a lot more work yeah. that's needed to develop those systems for vegetables. Yeah. It's definitely, it's definitely like a higher level of, no-till, I would say. Yeah. That was something we we're going to talk about at the end in terms of advice, but it, that the, the tarping is definitely like a great beginner um, way to start with no-till. And then I think the organic mulch is just, it's, it's, the organic mulch is definitely an added benefit because it is feeding the soil and that's awesome. Um, but in terms of weed suppression, like it's definitely something that is trickier. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I sometimes think just finding the right equipment to handle those systems as well. Yeah. Um, like I'm, I'm working on a project with a small roller crimper um, that goes behind a two wheel tractor. And um, it's, it's a nice system in many ways, but where um, 
we're still learning a lot about it in terms of what crops it's going to handle well and what crops mm -hmm. are going to bounce back from it. So, yeah, there's still a lot of trial and error going on. Um, and then, you know, other, other parts of that system, like how you're going to seed a cover crop in a reduced tillage system, you know, things like that become mm -hmm. challenging as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what are the next steps that you're looking at? Um, are there, is there like low hanging fruit or do you feel like you've picked all the low hanging fruit? Are there systems where you'd really like to, uh, to find a way to reduce tillage? I think uh, some maybe low hanging fruit would be just improving our um, hand weeding in the field of any weeds that are getting too big and going to go to seed. That's something that uh, if we can, again, I mentioned this, but just reducing that weed seed bed over time, um, that would just equal less need for cultivation in the future and, and therefore just like overall reducing our tillage again. Um, so that's something that we would like to see, we'd like to move towards, but like Kevin mentioned, we just have limited labor available um, for the farm. And so, yeah, right now <laughs> the weeds are there. And um, <laughs> yeah, that's that's just a, an always goal, I guess, is to get yeah. better at getting, getting those, um, those weeds that are going to seed out in the field. Yeah. 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 I think we'd also, as part of that, like to try doing a true uh, deep compost mulch on some mm -hmm. of the beds. Uh, we've done that a few times with uh, more sensitive crops like carrots that don't like having any weeds. And it works well, we just would need multiple hundreds of yards of compost. So we're trying to make our own compost out of some mm -hmm. of that chopped hay and bringing in some manure from our neighbors to, to make our own so we can try that. Uh huh. That actually reminds me of a question I wanted to ask about um, how you initially set up your beds and whether uh, you had amended them with much compost initially um, or if they were field soil that you had shaped. They were field soil to start with and we shaped them into raised beds uh, using a back blade for the most part and then leveling them off and using a rototiller across the top and that it worked for making nice looking beds, but they got very weedy very quick and the soil dried out and crusted and was in kind of rough shape. Mm. At and this so point, we didn't, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead, go ahead. So we didn't add uh, heavy compost to it to begin with. You also, you're talking about the very initial yep. beds. Yeah, and so those initial beds too had uh, grass aisles in between the beds. So the beds uh -huh. were by 50 feet still, but they had grass aisles in between. Um, and there were reasons we did that. I mean, just like it was nice to walk on those grass aisles yeah. and, <laughs> and yeah. it looked nice. And it was also like good for erosion and stuff. But um, as we started to moving into no-till, we realized pretty quickly that we needed to have larger blocks that we could cover with these large tarps. And so that at that time we like took out those grass aisles and now uh, we just have um, blocks of different sizes, but they're all like 50 feet long um, mm -hmm. and then just have beds within those blocks. Do you have anything down in the aisles like landscape fabric to cover the soil? 
No, no. We just try to keep the aisles smallish. So, uh, you know, shooting for maybe 18 inches for an aisle and then keeping those, keeping those, um, in theory, hoed with a wheel hoe, I guess, or we do, we're working on creating a tractor mounted cultivator that can just sweep the aisles. Um, uh-huh. But at this point, oftentimes they just end up, you know, like whatever weeds are going to come up, come up in those aisles. And sometimes we will use like our weed whip to cut them down, mm-hmm. but are not necessarily cultivating the aisles all the time. Just again, based on time available. Yeah. 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 That, um, I know a lot of people have, have tried living aisles and that can be pretty popular, but then also can be pretty invasive in a, yeah. um, in a no-till system. And yeah, that's always the balance. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, so I also wanted to ask you about the compost bioreactor project. I saw, um, I think on your website or on your social media, mm-hmm. um, that looks really interesting. I, I wondered if you could describe that a little bit. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I think three years ago, I started hearing about the Johnson Sioux composting method and that people were seeing some good results with it. And first tried creating a Johnson Sioux bioreactor, they call it. Uh, and then we got involved with the project with the land stewardship project that they're creating some of these across, I think six different farms in the area and then looking at the compost uh, kind of carefully to see what's in it. But mm-hmm. the Johnson Sioux composting system is basically creating a static aerated pile of compost by making a big bin that's about four feet in diameter and six feet tall and filling it with, uh, they're pretty indiscriminate about what type of compost source material you put in, but we're putting in chopped hay and forest soil and a little bit of manure. Mm-hmm. And then um, you put air tubes in every uh, couple of feet inside the bin so that Ideally, air is within six inches of any place in the compost and then keep it well watered and try and maintain a consistent temperature and allow uh, microbes and fungal hyphae to to take over the whole thing for one year. And Mm -hmm. it's supposed to create an extremely biodiverse and rich compost that you then use as a soil inoculant instead of like a something that you would put on thick on the soil. And so you can Uh either do an extract or a compost tea or just spread the uh, compost on very lightly across the soil and water it in to try and kickstart soil life in a a broader area. Uh Uh-huh. So you're really using it as an inoculant. We are Mm -hmm. hoping that those microbes from the compost are going to establish in the soil. That's the idea, yeah. Uh-huh. And that, yeah, the idea is that without by not tilling it, you end, or by not, sorry, not tilling, by not like turning the compost, you end up with a more diverse um, microbiology within the compost. Versus, and the more fungal heavy, I would imagine. Yeah, more fungal heavy, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, that is really interesting. Have you, have you used much of the compost in your fields or is it more to produce samples for analysis for the project? 
the project's focus is just to produce the compost and then analyze the compost. We use it kind of uh, hit and miss throughout the field and uh, mm -hmm. have not done it in a controlled way that we could say that we've seen uh, results using it and not using it. But maybe I, in the future we would do some more, yeah, more controlled kind of comparisons and see what we see what we see. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I really appreciate the time that you've spent to describe all these systems on your farm and and walk us through them. And um, was wondering whether in closing you could um, tell us a little bit about what advice you would give to other farmers who are also growing vegetables who would like to reduce tillage. Yeah, so I kind of touched on the fact that um, we think that tarps are a really great way to start for be beginners um, and that organic mulch we would consider a little more advanced. Um, so in in that, in overall in the no-till system, ideally you would be using a lot of compost just to amend your soil um, overall. And so you would want to find a good source for that compost. Um, and like we talked about, finding a, a way to move it efficiently around your farm, um, ideally, rather than, than maybe all by hand, I guess. Um, and then just like anything else that with no-till, there's going to be a learning curve. Um, and so I think the way that we did it in terms of just trying it out on a few beds first and um, and slowly learning the system and getting better at it over a few years. I think that that was probably an okay way to do that. Um, the tarps don't always work great for perennial weeds. So that's mm -hmm. something to just keep in mind if you have a lot of perennial weeds like quackgrass or um, or thistle, like it doesn't work great. If you leave the tarps on for a really long time, you can take care of those perennial weeds, but you do have to leave it on for, um, I would say months, yeah. Mm. yeah. Um, so there's that. Kevin also mentioned the idea that hoop houses are a great place to start trying it out because it's kind of small and contained. Um, and it's also just harder to get a tractor in there for tillage anyways. So, um, and then just like in terms of resources, I'm sure this has probably come up in these conversations before, but um, the there's a no-till market gardeners podcast that came out, I think started maybe like three years ago, probably. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a really, they just interview people who are doing no-till vegetable production for the most part, sometimes flowers as well. Um, and that's a really great resource. And then I also mentioned early on the Andrew Mefford's book, the, o the Organic No-Till Farming Revolution. <laughs> I just look at the yeah. book on my shelf. Um, and that similarly, he is, for the most part, he kind of explains in the beginning of that book, an overview of different types of small-scale no-till vegetable production and, and what the different systems can look like, which is basically split into, it's like all comes down to mulching and that mulch can either be biological, biodegradable mulch, or it can be plastic mulch. Mm -hmm. And so he kind of like outlines that really well. Um, and that was really helpful for me because it just kind of simplified the whole idea, I think. 
and then um, and then he interviews different farmers who are doing small scale no-till and that was it's just helpful to hear what other folks are doing um yeah yeah i think having those examples of other people trying things is um it's always good to be like i i often think about how it's it's good to be reminded that other people are learning as they go as well yeah absolutely and yeah sometimes the uh well, I, I was also going to say what you what you said about just starting a little smaller is important because some of these systems um, in the like the experimentation that I'm doing, um, I have a few trials on different farms. Um, when you have to implement the same system on a lot on you know a certain number of beds, and you don't find out until you know you're in late spring how much labor it's going to be. Right. Um, yeah. it, suddenly you realize this huge commitment that you you have, and maybe there was a modification that you could have done that would have made it easier. But yeah. mm -hmm. learning that on a small scale first is, is really nice. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Ah, so once again, thank you very much for, for joining me. Is there anything that you'd like to add as we, as we finish up? Um, yeah, I'd say like adopting no-till has made us feel like better farmers and that's nice. And uh, when it works well, of course. And then we're seeing just being out in the field often, we're seeing good improvements in soil structure and soil life. And that feels good as a, you know, a land steward. Mm -hmm. And that, yeah, generally using the system makes our farm function smoother and better and uh, feels more sustainable in the long run. Yeah. Yeah, it makes, makes me feel like hopeful for sure for the future that these systems feel very sustainable and that we could keep doing this for um, maybe a long time. Oh. Yeah, and that is good news. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, it's been a pleasure hearing from you. And once yeah, thank again, you, Ru. Kevin and Annalie from Good Turn Farm. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. That concludes this episode of The Vegetable Beat. If you'd like to check out all of our past episodes, head on over to glveg.net slash listen. Sweet. Okay. okay. Thanks, Natalie. <laughs> okay. I got to run. Yeah. <laughs> okay. See ya. All right. Okay, bye. Bye. Bye.